be in Colossians chapter 3 today, Colossians chapter 3, as we reflect on the, on the resurrection of, of Jesus. I think all of us enjoy having new things. We get new cars because our old ones wear out, and so we, we, get, we get a new one. Now, I've never actually bought like a new, new car before. It's always just newer than the old piece of junk that I had before. But it still feels new to me. So we like our, our new cars. Or I just recently got a, a new-to-me phone. Uh, some of you all like to be on the cutting edge. Like the new one comes out, you're like, dump the iPhone 14. I'm onto the iPhone 36 or like our new phones. Go out and buy new clothes. Maybe you get a, a wedding that's coming up. You're like, man, I'm going to go get some new clothes. I want to have sort of something that's stylish, something that's in. We got new cars, new phones, new clothes. Maybe you go out and move to a new city and you, you get new friends and a new social circle. Or you transition and you get a, a new job and it's just a brand new start and you're leaving behind something in, in the past. I really like new days. You get up in the morning and whatever happened yesterday, we get, we get a, a sunrise, a new mercies, and a new, a new start. But you know, for all of our love for things that are new, for all of our buying new phones and new cars and new shirts and moving into new styles, our cars still break down. You buy your 2023, it comes off the lot, and then there's something wrong, a recall comes in, you've got to take it back to the shop. Your technology becomes obsolete like five and a half minutes after you get it. There's a, there's a faster one and a faster microprocessor and more memory and a nicer camera and more megapixels. Your clothes eventually go out of style. Now, I've been told people are like, hey, you wear that shirt long enough, it'll come back into style. I've never been one who's been great at that kind of thing. Your new friends often will move away or fall out. Days that are new eventually come to an end. And our attempts at getting a new start often fizzle out. You see, ultimately what happens, all of our attempts at newness, at, at having a new start and moving on to having something new is eventually death and entropy catch up. You know, the, the laws of physics that everything is sort of going into more and more chaos. And if you're not keeping work, if you're not working on your house, eventually it falls apart. If you don't weed the, the flower bed, eventually the weeds take over and eventually everything dies. Scientists say that if you leave the universe long enough, eventually it's going to go off into heat death, or we're going to get absorbed into a black hole in that poof. That'll be it. That's the inevitable course of everything in this fallen creation, is every life eventually comes to an end. Everything eventually ends in chaos. Everything eventually ends in death. And listen, if we are looking simply through a naturalistic lens at the world, there is absolutely no point to any of it. The wise man Solomon writes in the book of Ecclesiastes that there's just a cycle. The water, the rain falls, the water runs into the sea, and then it gets absorbed back into the clouds again. It's just these cycles. And one generation comes and another comes after it. And you're you're born, and then you live, and then you die. And hopefully you have some kids who will then do the same thing after you. But what is the point if everything eventually ends in death? What is the point if every life eventually is going to end in a casket? If every birth is inevitably leading to a funeral, what's the point if all of us are careening over the cliff called death eventually? You see, death is sort of like this impenetrable wall that every attempt we have, every endeavor we begin on eventually hits. Here's what I'm saying this morning. If, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, if death gets the final word, Every conversation is ultimately pointless. If death wins every game, you might as well take your ball and go home. 
We might as well give in to the seductive call of hopelessness. We might as well give in to the, the whisper in our ear that says there is no point. You might as well give in to the, the, the darkest bent of your heart. You might as well accept the cynic's pronouncement that everything is meaningless. Like that's literally the condition we are in if Christ be not raised. But what if? What if the truth that we are singing about and reading about and celebrating today is not just a nice story? What if what we are saying today as Christians that Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago walked out of a grave and defeated death? What if death is on life support? What if eventually the universe is not end, is moving toward heat death, but what if the universe is moving towards a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth? What if Jesus is raised? Then there really is something new that is unleashed in history. The resurrection of Jesus is just like a bomb that goes off in the midst of history. We're here today to declare the revolutionary truth to the world, the most revolutionary truth that has ever entered this world, that someone has defeated death, someone has silenced death, someone has walked off that field in victory, and it changes everything. We're here today to say that Easter changes everything. Now, I want to I quantify that for you, and that's why we're opening our Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Here, the Apostle Paul, who was an early Christian, he's reflecting on what the resurrection means for the way we live our lives. Follow along as I read the first four verses. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Now, Paul is talking about the fact that as Christians, people who have put their faith in Jesus, we have been united to Christ. We have union with Jesus. So he's saying what Jesus did in his life and death and burial and resurrection becomes mine. That just as Jesus rose from the dead, if you're a believer in Jesus, you too have arisen from sin and death. And just as Jesus died, you too have died to the old life. Like literally a brand new beginning. Just as Jesus rose, you rose. And just as Jesus will one day return and be glorified, we too will one day be glorified with Christ. In other words, his resurrection becomes our resurrection. This becomes the foundation for all of Christian living. Indeed, in the logic of the book of Colossians, this is where Paul transitions from talking about gospel truth to gospel living. This is the hinge on which the entire door swings. So what does the resurrection change? Okay, I can say the resurrection changes everything, now let's go eat. But let's just break that down a little bit. I want to just talk through some of the the newness, some of the, I don't want to use the word novelties because that's just too trite, but the tsunamis of newness that have been unleashed by this earthquake of Easter morning. What are they? Well, number one, Easter gives us a brand new reality. Don't lose sight of what Paul is assuming in verse one. If ye then be risen with Christ, he is assuming something. He's assuming that Jesus really rose again from the dead. He's taking that as historical fact. He's taking that as gospel truth. He's not treating that as a myth. He's not treating that as a metaphor. He's saying this really happened. He really arose from the dead, and it changes everything. The resurrection, to quote F.F. Bruce, is the grand argument and incentive for Christian living. Why should I as a Christian live differently? Because Jesus rose from the dead. 
So we pull the camera back a little bit just to state the obvious. If ye then be risen with Christ, assumes that Christ rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. Now, death seems like an unalterable fact of life. If you're not a Christian here today, you're a skeptic. You say, you know, I, I, I believe in science. It's like death is just the way things are. Biology, things come into being, they live, they eventually wear out, they eventually die. It just seems an unalterable fact. If that's the case, why do we have to live our lives so often in denial of death? Ever wondered that? We go to other people's funeral but rarely consider that it will be ours. We sort of know on one hand, I'm not going to live forever, but we sort of act like we will. You, 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 you attend a funeral or you face death, and it feels like something that's not supposed to be there. It feels like an intrusion onto, uh, this goes against the order of things. This doesn't seem to be the way it's meant to be. And indeed, that's exactly what the Bible tells us. Death is not an original part of God's creation. Death is an intruder. Death is an invader that one day will be driven out and utterly defeated. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The fact that every single person in this room will eventually die, no matter your age, you will eventually die, is a reminder that you are a sinner, every one of us. The wages of sin. You sin, the payment, the check you get at the end of the week, it's death. That's the sentence from a holy God against sin. Not just physical death, but spiritual death, separation from God's glorious presence and the enjoyment of him to face his wrath forever in hell. The wages of sin is death, writ large over all of human history. It does not matter how physically fit you are. You might go to the gym eight days a week, right? And you take all of these supplements and protein powders and do all these things and run marathons. And eventually your body will give out and you'll die. That's why I don't do any of that stuff. Seems like a waste of time. Uh, Doesn't matter how morally pure you might be. You might say, you know, I have not done all these horrible things on certain lists of of taboos and and vices. You too will die. It does not matter how religious you are. It does not matter how much money you have. Billionaires are going to die just like people who live in abject poverty. Death's the great equalizer. And every graying hair, every creaking joint is a whisper of death's inevitable sentence or in my case, hair that is starting to retreat from the front of my head. We may try to ignore death. We may try to delay death. We may try to distract ourselves from it, but you cannot prevent it. So this makes incredibly revolutionary the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead, a brand new reality. Somebody finally overcame death. It's like an ax that cleaves history into a before and after. Before Jesus rose from the dead, and after Jesus rose from the dead. Our very calendars are organized around the fact that Jesus came to this earth. The resurrection of Jesus, yes, it happens, they come at the first dawn, but it's like the rays of the dawning sun peeking over the horizon after a long, bleak night. It's scattering the darkness before it. For the first time in human history, somebody beat death, rising by their own accord, never to die again. Now, there's other people in the Bible who rose again, but guess what? They, they, they eventually died. Since Easter... Death has been living on borrowed time. Since Easter, it has been on life support. Since Easter, it has been sitting on death row awaiting its final execution. Easter changes everything. It's this new reality. But verse 1 goes on to say that seek those things which are above, 
where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. He's, he's resurrected, but he's also reigning. Part of this reality is not only that death has been defeated, but what does it mean for Jesus to sit on the, on the right hand of God? We're not talking about like a physical location that like, oh, there's a literal throne somewhere out in the, in the cosmos. But it's to say that he has absolute power and that he is reigning as king over this universe, that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. We think of the new heavens and the new earth one day. We long for that. We think, oh, one day God's going to make all things new. Though the resurrection of Jesus says God has already started. The first fruits, it's like the, by the way, Easter Sunday happened on the Jewish festival of first fruits. When the, the very first fruits are coming in on the tree, and you would take those and offer them to God. The resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of the harvest. It's the beginning of the, 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 the final bringing in of all of God's children and the remaking of all of creation. He's actively, actively ruling and reigning, which means there's nothing that happens in this universe is happening by mistake. It's not that the, you know, God has wound up the clock and he's letting it run down. No, God is involved in every area of our lives. And the suffering that you are walking through right now is not outside of his plan, but is within his plan. He rules. He reigns. He's at the Father's right hand. He's the King of kings and he's the Lord of lords. If Jesus is reigning and remaking this old world, this should drive out our anxiety because we know he's in control and not us. This should drive out our fear. This should drive out our self-pity. This should drive out our despair to know that Jesus is reigning from the Father's right hand. I want to bring on to a a second truth here. Not only does the resurrection unleash a new reality, it gives us a brand new ambition. So now coming to sort of Paul's argument, that sort of background to he's assuming the resurrection, this new reality that's been introduced. But notice the verbs in verses 1 and 2. It says, if you're risen with Christ, okay, if you're a believer in Jesus, if you've experienced the new birth, it says, seek those things which are above Verse 2, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Listen, our natural inclination is to make it our ambition to sort of be rich and have a good and happy life here and now. But because Jesus has risen from the dead, we have a new ambition. We have something new to live for. This calls us to examine our ambitions, to ask ourselves what really matters the most to me. Now, listen, there's the things that we say matter to us, and there's the things that actually matter to us. You can say, oh yeah, following Jesus really matters to me, but I just never go to church or read the Bible or pray or do any of the things that would be part of seeking Jesus. Listen, what we prioritize, what we truly value will come out in what we choose to do. Those are the real priorities you have. Those are the real ambitions of your heart. That, that word seek is the language of ambition. It's the language of goal setting. It's the language of strenuous pursuit. So Paul is saying, for the Christian, Jesus is your treasure. He's at the Father's right hand. He's he's glorified in heaven. That means the thing that matters most to me are are not the things of this earth, but eternal things, heavenly things. Jesus is our treasure. Jesus is our longing. Jesus is our praise. Jesus is our prize. Jesus is our life. Now, what is your great ambition in life? Like, really? Don't don't, don't give me religious mumbo-jumbo or the canned answer that you know, oh, it's Jesus. What really is your ambition here today? What what is it your heart longs after that? If only I could have this or be here, then I would feel satisfied. Is it to simply grow rich? I have lots of money, feel financially secure. Is it to enjoy your family? I I just want my family, my kids to 
be happy and to be married and stable. And that's, that's what I'm really after in life. That's what makes me get out of bed in the morning. Is to have a fun life. I just want to have a good time, just spend as much time as I can on the boat, out on the golf course, doing the things that I love to do. Is your great ambition to maybe see a more just society? Maybe you're thinking sort of more big picture. I want to see a society that is marked by social justice. And until I get that, I, I'm not going to be happy and I'm going to feel upset and angry. Or I, I want to see our country to be, have this national greatness. Is it to enjoy popular approval, to be well-known and well-liked? Listen, all of these things have elements of goodness in them. I want to see a more just society. Who doesn't want that? I want to see your kids successful and happy. Who wouldn't want that? But here's the problem. When we make those ultimate things, they will never deliver what we are looking for. They're not bad things to want, but they simply cannot deliver what you are truly longing after. You see, what is buried under all of those things that we are longing after is a longing for that which we lost back in Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, we lost the presence of God. We lost joy in his presence. We lost access to glory. And our hearts then latch onto all these other things, trying to find what we used to have. The Bible calls that idolatry. Trying to find in the creation what can only be found in the creator. Trying to find ultimate meaning in your family. And guess what happens when, when, when the kids don't want to hang out with you as much? Your life is over. Right? You, you come along and you say, I want ultimate meaning in, in lots of money. And then the stock market crashes. And with it goes your joy. See, you're putting all of your eggs in the basket of happiness and joy here and now. You've turned to a million substitute idols. Calvin says our hearts are idol factories. Our hearts are just inventing little idols that we worship all the time, substitutes for God. Turning to these idols to satisfy, to find ultimate meaning, is like substituting used engine oil for coffee. I love coffee. Used engine oil looks kind of the same, but it ain't the same. Now, I've not tried, but I'm, I'm a smart enough man to know it's not the same. Not only will it fail to satisfy the caffeine craving that you have, it will probably poison you, I would imagine. Examine your ambitions. I mean, you're, you're here today and your ambitions, all of these other things. Turn from your idols. Turn from those idols and turn to Christ Now, Paul is speaking primarily to believers. If you are then risen with Christ, if you're saved, it makes total logical sense. The most illogical thing for you as a Christian is to try to find happiness and satisfaction and meaning in stuff that's not ultimate. It doesn't make sense. It's wacky. It doesn't doesn't fit who we are. Because if you're raised with Jesus, then seek Jesus. That's your life. That's your joy. That's your meaning. That should be everything. Seek that which is above. Now, notice verse 2. Set your affection. The idea is literally mind, your, your, your internal life, what you think about, what you long after. Mind those. Think about those things which are above, not those things which are on the earth. Now, maybe you're following along and you're thinking, okay, that's all good and well, but if we're all just thinking about Jesus and heaven and living holy lives, won't that lead us to all sort of check out of our responsibilities here on earth? Instead of going to work, I'll just sit around at home praying all day, and then the house will be foreclosed upon. Like, that doesn't sound like a good plan. Instead of spending time with my kids, I'm just going to be in church and read my Bible. That's not what this is suggesting. In fact, if we read the rest of Colossians 3, we find out that this life of seeking that which is above, let me just give you a little sampling where, where Paul goes with this. Look at verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things. 
For this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest ye be discouraged. Servants, obey in all things your masters, according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as the Lord, and not unto men. Here's the irony. When we try to make all of our lives about the here and now, we try to make ultimate what's not actually ultimate. But when we say the ultimate thing is Christ and his glory, it actually enables us to live the way we were meant to live in this world, to really enjoy our marriages for what they are, to really raise our kids the way they're meant to be raised, not turning them into the vehicle for my personal fulfillment, to find in my job the means of provision and generosity, not the way that I'm finding my identity. The amazing thing is when we seek that which is above, it doesn't lead us to checking out of this life, but it leads us to truly living this life. So what does it mean to seek those things which are above? It means to live as if Jesus really rose from the dead. It means to live to say that Jesus is my treasure and seeking and knowing him is my greatest ambition. It will mean prioritizing corporate worship, not just coming in Easter once a year. I mean, I'm glad you're here. But it's going to mean saying this is something that matters, gathering with God's people to sing and celebrate and know Christ. It's going to mean getting into the word and being like, man, I want to know this Jesus as he's revealed himself. It's going to mean seeking him in prayer. It's going to mean having a real relationship with Christ. Seek those things which are above. Seek not like, you know, when your wife sends you to be like, hey, can you go find the mayonnaise in the fridge and you open up? You're like, yep, not there. Close it. I looked. No, seek like you're seeking treasure. Like you know that it's out there. Seek like you would stalking a deer through the forest. Seek so you can find the object that you are longing for. That's what we're talking about. Seek until you find. Pursue. Seeking that which is above is more than just a list of do these five things, these practices, and then tack them on to your otherwise worldly outlook. That's a whole different perspective. What matters is what's going to be here 10 million years from now. That's what matters. That's what I'm going to live for. Saying I'm going to prioritize that which is holy over that which just simply is about short-term happiness. Set your affections, your mind, your intellects on things which are above. When we treat this world like it's the main event, you ever go to a Little League game and there's the parents in the stands who are convinced this is like game seven of the World Series, like MLB, and they're screaming at the kids and they're throwing stuff and they're yelling at the umpire and you're like, man, they look like clowns. They realize how foolish they look. That's what we're like when we treat this life like this is all that matters. What really matters is eternity. What really matters is a relationship with Christ. So you say, I'm here today on Easter Sunday. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. That should unleash for you a new ambition to seek that which is above, not just the piddly things of this life here and now, things that won't matter 10 million years from now. But number three, and this is key to Paul's argument, is the resurrection unleashes a new identity for us. Not just a new reality that death's been defeated, new creation's coming. Not just a new ambition to seek that which is above, not just what's on this earth. But a new identity for those who believe in Christ. Just pay attention. Look at verse 1. He says, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Look at verse 3. For you are dead. Back in, in chapter 2, verse 20, he says that we, we, we are dead with Christ. We died to the old life. So you're dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, not just the giver of life, but is the very source and sustenance and substance of our life. When you become a believer in Jesus, it's like you get a brand new identity. 
like a new you. It's almost like a new birth, to use a different metaphor from the Bible. Think about that. Imagine the, the beauty of that. What if I told you you could have a brand new start and your entire past will be done away with? Every sin, every wrongdoing, every failure, erased and never will be brought up again. And a new you would be born, not just one that's getting a fresh start. It's one thing to say, erase the past, don't mess, mess up like you would before. All things being equal, I'm going to do the same mistakes I made in the past. Unless I get a new heart and a new set of desires and a new nature. And that's what I get in the gospel. A new nature, a new heart, a new set of loves, a new affection, a new bent. There's a brand new identity. So Paul's argument, he says in verse 3, you are dead and your life is hid with Christ to God. Now, he's not talking physically dead, like it seems kind of silly to write a letter to a bunch of corpses. But he's saying you have, just as Jesus died on the cross by faith, you died with him to your sin and to the old life that you used to live. That's the entire point of this paragraph is Christians, you're united to Jesus. This is good news, by the way. This is the heart of the gospel. You and I are sinners who rebel against God in our actions, in our thoughts, in our deeds. We rebel against God by doing things that he tells us not to do, like committing adultery and lusting and lying and being angry, and then leaving undone the things we ought to do. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who's carried that one out, really? And on our own merit, there's no chance that we would ever have of being righteous in God's eyes. Not a chance. God sets out the standard, love the Lord your God with all of your being. We just love ourselves. Love your neighbor like you love yourself, and we just turn inward. We fall short of that standard. And keeping that standard perfectly is the requirement for entering heaven. What gives? Jesus enters this world, and he lives the sinless life that you and I could never live. He kept the law of God absolutely perfectly. He did not for one second think a sinful thought. He did not for one millisecond desire a sinful thing. He always did the things that pleased the Father. Now, if I'm united with Jesus, guess what that means? Jesus' perfect life is now my perfect life. His act of obedience is as if I kept the law. We hear the old definition of justification, just as if I never sinned. But it's also just as if I kept the law perfectly because Jesus did that for me. If you believe in Jesus, his righteousness is put to your account and God sees you as spotless. New identity. Jesus dies. Same way, I can die to my old life, die to my old nature, die to everything about me. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, it's not just adding something else onto your life that was already there. It's taking the old life and the old you and putting it in a grave. So it's pictured in baptism. You go down into the water, I died to the old life, and I'm raised to walk in newness of life. So if you're risen with Christ, that means you have been born again. You have undergone a radical change in your life. Has that occurred in your life? I don't mean... Do you identify as a Christian? Okay, and I don't mean, have you been baptized? I don't mean, have you prayed a sinner's prayer? I mean, have you been born again? Has there been a time in your life that you have seen Jesus as indescribably beautiful? Has there been a time in your life that you have seen yourself as grotesquely sinful and you have thrown yourself on the mercy of Jesus? Has there been a time in your life that you were running hard after sin and you repented and now you're running hard after Christ? That's what it means to be risen with Christ. It's not just a sort of a speed bump in my life. It's a U-turn, complete transformation. 
Has that happened in your life? Do you have that new identity? That's the heart of the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus in my place. You know, some sort of spy movies, there will often be a character who faked their own death. So they could kind of go off and do something else, and nobody's going to look for you if you're dead after all. And then often they get found out because they didn't do a good job on cleaning up their mess. In a sense, in a far greater, grander sense, that's what happened to us. Our old identity is gone, and there's a new us. If any man therefore be in Christ, he's a new creature. Think of that. A new identity that we have because Jesus walked out of a grave. Our whole lives are now wrapped up in him or entwined with who he is. A fourth wave of newness unleashed by the resurrection, we have a new hope. Look at verse 4, Colossians 3, verse 4. And when Christ, okay, so verse 3 says you're dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, our life shall appear, then shall you appear with him in glory. So my life, like the, the truest sense of what my life is, is not just my physical life. I'm talking about my spiritual life. It is wrapped up in who Jesus is. It's hidden with Christ in God. It's currently veiled. People don't see the full glory that I have as a son of God. But he says, one day Jesus is going to come back and the veil is going to be torn away. And the glory of Jesus will be put on full display and the glory of all of those who are his children. It's like you're sort of behind the curtain on the stage. And one day the curtain's going to go up and the whole set's going to be displayed. Reality is really going to kick off in a new way. Because my hope, it's hidden now. Okay, it says in verse 3, your life is hid with Christ and God. Okay, I'm God's son. And, and what it says in 1 John, it doth not yet appear what ye shall be. One day, all of those who are God's children will one day be glorified. I think if we could see any of the other people in this room glorified in Christ's presence, if you could see a glorified body, a resurrected Christian, it would be absolutely terrifying. It would be so terrifying you would either recoil in horror or maybe want to, to worship because you think it's an angel. That's who all of us are if you're a believer in Jesus. One day, who you really are will be revealed when Jesus comes back. That's our hope. Now, in the meantime, our life is hidden with Christ and God. We look just like everyone else. We go through life. You hit your thumb with a hammer, it still hurts, and you want to say bad words, right? When you go through suffering, the heartache is still real. The battle with sin is ongoing. We still have remaining and indwelling sin that we're going to struggle with till the day that we die, till the day that Christ returns. So our hope is, yes, Jesus will come back. And I'm not talking about a vague optimism. When I say hope, it's not just a hope and change and all of these sort of ephemeral ideas and fairies and rainbows and stardust. No, we're not talking about an optimism that's latching on to a starry-eyed idealism. We're not talking about an optimism that's just misty-eyed sentimentality. We're talking about rock-solid hope because Jesus rose from the dead, and that means one day I, too, will be resurrected. I, too, one day will be resurrected. That is our hope. So right now, we are, our life is hidden, and one day it will be revealed. That's why we keep on keeping on. That's why we keep trusting Jesus even when it hurts. That's why you keep walking through the valley of the shadow of death even when it is dark. Because we are secure and safe in Jesus. Verse 3 says, my life is hidden, which is almost the idea of protected, sort of put in a safe, guarded, 
with Christ in God, doubly secure. No, no one can pluck us from the Father's hand. You cannot lose that eternal life that was given to you at your new birth. You, that birth certificate is never going to be stolen, so to speak. Your life can never be revoked. It is eternally secure in Christ. And one day when Jesus returns, Christ who is our life. So if my life is wrapped up in Jesus, when Jesus is revealed, when Jesus is glorified, I too will be revealed with him in glory. That's what we're looking forward to. We're not looking forward to the heat death of the universe. Oh no, we're looking forward to the return of the Son of God. We're looking forward not to a casket of that's it, that's all over, but the day when the graves are open and all of those who have put their faith in Jesus are resurrected. We're looking forward to the trump resounding and the fact that we shall be changed. We're looking forward to the hope that we who are alive will be caught up together with the Lord in the clouds so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's what we're looking for. And guess what? It changes everything. It changes everything. I don't fear death because I know that Jesus has defeated death. I don't look forward to it. But the reality of death is no longer a dead end at the end of, a, of, a, of an alleyway, but rather it is a doorway to eternal joy. One day, our true identity as united with Christ will be put on full display. One day, the sin nature, aren't you sick and tired of struggling with sin, with tripping over temptation, with your foolish, sinful, wicked heart leading you away from what is right? Kicking yourself, being like, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? But thanks be to God, who's given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. One day it will be ours. One day that which we long for will be in our hand. Not something that we look for down the road, but will be there in our embrace. This is who we are. We are destined for eternal glory. We're one day going to share in infinite, ever-increasing joy. Don't think of heaven as, as sheer boredom. But as C.S. Lewis said, it's like a book that every chapter is better than the one before it for all eternity. The joy never ends because we're in the presence of a God who is infinite. This reminds us we're made for so much more than work and play and survival. We're made for glory. We're made for worship. We're made for eternity. It means that even in the midst of the deepest waters, I can be sure I won't drown. It means that in the midst of the fiercest flames, I won't be consumed. It means that in the darkest night of the soul, I won't be abandoned. It means that the best is always yet to come. It's pretty good. Now, this is not true of everybody in this room. This is only true of those who have been risen with Christ. If ye then be risen with Christ... Assuming that you are, this is true. But if you're not risen with Christ, you don't have eternal glory to look forward. You have eternal damnation to anticipate, to dread. That's what the Bible teaches. Christ is risen. We have a new hope. But finally, and I just want to summarize sort of the rest of the book of Colossians, the resurrection of Jesus unleashes a new relationship. Easter changes everything. Let me summarize the rest of Colossians 3 for you. Look in verse 5. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Okay, put to death. Yeah, my identity is in heaven. Put to death those things that are still of the earth. And he lists out fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry. Sin. Sin of all kinds. I have a new relationship to sin. You see, before you're a Christian, 
Sin is just kind of wrapped up in who you are, right? That, that's your identity. That's what you love. That's what your heart gravitates towards. But you become a believer. Sin is now your deadly enemy that you kill, that you crucify. It introduces a new relationship to Christians. Look at verse 11. He's talking about this, this place where there is this renewal. He says, there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, vows of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, notice, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. A new way of relating to the saints, a new way of relating to other Christians. It's not about rivalry and competitiveness. It's not about uh, resurrecting old grievances and having a pecking order and hierarchy. But Christ is all in all. Unity. Think about all of the sins that plague our world. We can think about sexual immorality. We can think about racism. We can think about inequality and all of these things. The Bible says... The gospel of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, changes our relationship to all of them. Christ is all and in all. Verse 17, uh, verse 16 rather, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. We're commanded to sing. If Jesus did not rise from the dead and we're just all on our way to dying, singing seems like a really cruel joke. Or maybe, as Mark said, it's just kind of the opium of the people. It's just a way to dull the pain until we face the inevitable. But if Jesus rose from the dead, we can look death in the eye and we can sing its final defeat. It changes our relationship to family. I read the verses earlier. The way that husbands and wives relate to each other is permanently changed because Jesus rose from the dead. Before, before even when Paul wrote these words in Colossians, I don't think we understand how radically different the world was before Jesus came. Husbands could treat their wives as property. You could cheat incessantly on your wife, no problem. You could treat her like property, no problem. Wives have no voice, they're basically property, they're basically treated as less than dirt. Children the same way, the potter familias, the father in the home, just kill your kids if you don't like them. No, no penalty. Slaves and masters. This is a world in which there's slavery and rigid hierarchies. And Paul comes along and upends all of that. We take it for granted today. It's sort of the air we believe because there's been 2,000 years of Christian influence where we're like, well, duh. It changes everything. The way we relate to family, the way husbands love their wives, the way wives follow the leadership of their husbands, the way that bosses treat those who work with them. Changes all of that. Chapter 4, verse 2. Continue in prayer. Watch the same with thanksgiving. The resurrection changes my relationship to worship, changes my relationship to prayer. It gives me a new relationship to sin. It gives me a new relationship to the church. It gives me a new relationship to my family. It gives me a new relationship to work. That I work because I serve Jesus. It gives me a new relationship to worship. We pray to our God as Christians, not because we've got to tick some boxes and try to earn his favor. We don't pray to him like people prayed in the ancient world. Our praying is not laced with dread, but it's soaked with thanksgiving. That's what verse 2 says, watch in the same with thanksgiving. Its focus is not on simply avoiding Zeus's lightning bolts, like I better pray or God will zap me. But we pray so we can advance the message and the mission of Jesus. It changes how we pray. 
Are you looking for something new today? The new thing you're gonna, you are looking for, it's not going to be found in some stuff you're going to get at Walmart or something you're going to order on Amazon. <laughs> Just not. Like, you're going to get it and be like, hey, this is awesome, and then it'll be old, like, after you have it for a while. True newness is found in something very, very ancient. True newness is found in the empty tomb. The resurrection of Jesus does not give us something that is just recycled or painted over or re-released or updated. It's not the same old hardware with just a new version of the same old operating system. It's brand new. Easter morning gives us something new. It gives us a new reality where death has been defeated and one day death will be expelled. It gives us a new ambition where we seek that which is above, not just, not just trying to find our ultimate meaning in all the things here and now. It gives us a new identity, a new beginning, a new start, a, a new me. It gives me a new hope. For my hope is not just hopefully I can avoid as much suffering as I can in this life, but a new hope that one day Jesus will return and he will make all things new. It gives me a whole set of new relationships. You're here today. And this, you're like, man, this just sounds so good. I want this. This is a better story than anything I've ever heard. This is a better offer than any, any sales pitch or any job offer or anything that the interviewer has told me or anything that a candidate has promised during an election season. I want this. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Here's the thing about gifts. It's insulting to try to buy a gift. You receive a gift with gratitude, with humility, with faith. You can receive this gift of eternal life. Not by doing a bunch of things to try to earn. No, 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 that's insulting to the giver. By simply reaching out the hand of faith that is completely empty. And saying, nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross I claim. We receive that gift Instead of running hard after our sin, we turn from it in disgust and run into the arms of the one who is lavishing these gifts upon us. And you can receive Christ today. The Bible says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Bible says you must be born again. You can only be born again by a work of the Spirit. We don't know how the Spirit does what the Spirit does But if he's stirring in your heart, if he's convicting you, put your faith in Christ. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. And listen, there's not a magical prayer that you need to pray. There's not some words that I need to recite these words like a mantra and voila. But genuinely, turn to Jesus. Cry out to him. Beg him to forgive you and to save you. And he promises that he will. The one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Would you bow with me? Oh God.